This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh yeah, the year was 1996, and it's a funny-looking podcast, you know, in a, just a general kind of way. The movie? Fargo. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films ever made. And when we do, we are going to shoot them into space. And we're starting a brand new series called Snowbound, which is about movies that take place in very snowy areas, very cold areas, or where people are, are trapped in... Well, I guess snowing cold areas. I mean, that's it. It's it's a cold miniseries. <laughs> it is me expressing my grief of not being able to go to Sundance, which I needed. So uh, take me to Sundance. Take me to cold, wintry places where I can feel my feet get numb because I look forward to it every year. And since I can't go, we're doing it now. I love this. And we are kicking off this podcast with the film Fargo, a movie that many people believe should currently be on the AFI Top 100 list. We'll get into that. We talked about that at length multiple times throughout this series. Uh, but Amy, just a little bit of feedback. Our Christmas story episode, which I know wasn't our last episode, our, the apartment was our last episode, but our Christmas story episode really got people talking because of our debate about 
The Christmas Story and Christmas Vacation. Now, I know that you took the assignment. You went and watched Christmas Vacation for no other reason than to see if I was right and that that movie was very good. Can you tell everybody what you thought of Christmas Vacation? I thought that you were wrong. I thought I would completely buy your premise that a Christmas vacation had like way more jokes per minute, maybe dumber jokes, but that it was at least like joke, 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 joke. Here we go. We're funny. We're making you laugh. So I was like, okay, I'm putting it on. My boyfriend and I were planning our stocking stuffers for his whole family. I was ready. And I suddenly was realizing there's almost no jokes in a Christmas vacation. Like each scene has like a joke and then they stretch it out forever. That bit where Chevy Chase is like can't figure out why his Christmas lights aren't going on. It's because there's like a light switch in the garage that needs to be flipped. But he's going in and out and people are flipping this light switch. And sometimes the light goes on and then sometimes the light comes off. And then he can't figure it out. And then sometimes the light goes on again and then it goes off. And again, that went on for like seven minutes. And it was just the same joke. It was just, yes, sometimes... The, the flashlight is flipped and sometimes it's not. It was, I mean, it was agonizing. Like the whole build up to when the cat gets electrocuted was just like, here they're at the table, cut to the cat by the wires. Here they are eating dinner again, cut to the cat by the wires. Like it just felt so padded. I was like, get on with it, man. Here tell me I a am joke. shaking my damn head. And I want you to tell people what you thought the funniest part was. Oh God. Now you're going to yeah. get me snow canceled. No, no. Just say, well, you could just say the funniest <laughs> part to you. The The funniest part to you was? When Clark kept talking about that lady's boobies at the store. Okay. Okay. So that's the funniest part to you. I I mean, I, it was because Chevy was, there, there were many jokes. At least it was an evolving, were, changing thing. Chevy yes, looked like he was having jokes. fun. many jokes. There were many well. lines about boobs. There are many, uh, many things to say. Okay, it's quite fine. nipply in here. Let me tell you. Oh, then Amy, maybe in a way you're proving my point. One whole scene with only one joke in it. Okay, watch told this. Told in I'm many g- different ways. I mean, come hold on. on hold like on. I want to defend one movie. thing. They just take a really long time. Opening scene. Opening scene. You cut to the car. The family trying to sing Christmas carols. The kid's not into it. Funny little opening scene. Then you have this weird guy tailgating him. Funny, weird little moment. Then you have this like little battle between somebody tailgating you. Again, a very simple life choice. Funny, we do it. And then his ego takes him to the point where he tries to change lanes. He gets stuck underneath a tractor trailer with a giant truck log on it. He's trapped under a funny scene. And then he has to pull out and he shoots off into a snowy bank. That's like four different distinct beats before you even get into the movie. Then you go find the Christmas trees. Audrey's eyes are frozen. The Christmas tree is too big. They didn't bring a saw. Like, come on. You, these are jokes. You know what you're jokes. doing right now? No, you're, you're just listing complaints. Everybody's upset about something. That's not a joke. Oh, that's, my what do you mean frozen. it's not a joke? Oh. You've never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, but although I'm not saying that that's not, the, the movie is not like complain humor. It's like, it's all relatable it humor. It is complain humor. Oh it's not God. relatable. None of those kids in this family seem to like Christmas at all. They're just complaining about everything their dad is doing. It's like they just met their dad. Oh, this is the worst. All right. We brought it to the people. Because I can sit here and debate this all day long. We brought it to the people. 60-40, vacation over story. That's on Twitter. That wasn't on my Twitter. That was on the unspooled Twitter. It was a little bit closer on uh, the Facebook group. But last time I checked, vacation was winning. It was close, but they were winning. And I 
what I realized was there's a couple things at play. Uh, first of all, I saw this movie uh, when I was younger. It's a staple in my family. It's a staple, I think, in many people's family. And I think it's a movie that people have enjoyed for a very long time. I know that there's another group of people out there, which you might be a part of, uh, that have watching it for the first time. They come in with their baggage about Chevy Chase. They come in with, uh, you know, maybe they don't like slapstick or these kind of moments. But I got to say, um, I didn't realize that there are people out there that did not love uh Vacation. I mean, there's toys, there's clothes, there are literally Christmas villages that you can buy in the theme of the Griswold's uh, neighborhood. Uh, and for me, the best part of Christmas Vacation is that they technically live in Murtaugh's house from Lethal Weapon, uh, which is a little <laughs> uh, fun fact. Uh, that's where Gary Busey and Mel Gibson took it. To the end of the line and leave the weapon one, and they revisited that house multiple times. Um, Can I just say, yeah, yes, you sympathize with Julia Louise Dreyfus, yes, you that's what I would like to say. Oh, what's so wrong with her? She wants to drink wine and she has an active sex life with her partner, and they just don't want to be like blinded every night. What's so bad about Mm, that? They are so the only thing I don't, the only thing I have a problem with in the movie in rewatching it because I was looking at it a little bit more critically after you ripped it apart was that there are moments where Chevy Chase's humor gets in the way of what is on the written page. Like, there's that moment where the yuppie couple comes back. They're in those disgustingly weird uh, track suits. They make a comment that the tree is too big. And he's like, where are you going to put that? And he's like, bend over and I'll show you. And he goes, hey, Griswold, don't talk to me like that. And he's like, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to your wife. And I was like, hmm. In the grand scheme of the movie, that feels more like a Chevy Chase joke than a Clark Griswold joke. And I think very rarely do we see Chevy Chase in a low status position. And he is consistently just dumped on in that movie. And I think he's actually really funny in that. Like when they're in the uh, Costco and Randy Quaid keeps on just piling on all that dog food. <laughs> like, and you know that he's got to pay for all that dog food. Like, and that uh, Randy Quaid, great performance. And you don't even like that part of it. I don't. But hearing you describe that, I think you're actually nailing nailing what I think doesn't work as well about Christmas Vacation, which is that all of the jokes are just centered on Chevy Chase doing something and everybody thinking he's a dingbat. Like the the humor is not spread around. It's all like mm. logged Jesus style by Chevy those, Chase. The man okay. who just wants to have Christmas. Those grandparents, those grandparents are perfection. All four of them equally different. Beverly D'Angelo, like the way that they interact, like I love her relationship with Chevy Chase in those movies. And then when he gets sap in his hands and then it goes onto the magazine, it goes into her hair and then it pulls over the lamppost. I mean, she plays that so well. When she starts smoking that cigarette, I think the characters are really well defined. Maybe not Rusty and Audrey. I mean, they are always the kids who falling hate Christmas. Victim. Yeah. Well, they're the kids who always hate everything in, in the history of the, you know, vacation films. But I think Audrey is really funny when she doesn't want to sleep with her brother. And oh, but when the grandparents are looking at like Jane magazine and the top bunk bed, come on, these are funny. Like, I don't know. <laughs> they're funny jokes to me. I think they're really good. And Brian Doyle Murray, pretty solid as like just the asshole boss. Uh, and I love that Randy Quaid tries to kidnap him at the end. It's a sweet moment. It's a sweet moment. Well, I'm happy we are for you. two. Yeah, I'm we are. We are two people who disagree. Who knew? And, who and knew? look, I technically, think, you look. You look at something like a Christmas story, and I feel like it's telling jokes on so many different levels. There's like 
the way the narration is interacting with like the footage. There's the way the kid's face is sort of magnified. Like the camera itself is telling jokes and the way that they shoot everything. Like Amy, the, I'm a person the of the lo- people right. and the people agree with me. And that's all I can say. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the ratings of the vacation <laughs> movies, I posted this out there because people are like, no one likes this movie. They're like, uh, you dinks. Everyone likes this movie or a majority of people do. And I'm OK to be in a world where people don't like it. But I know I'm not in the minority. Well, That's you know, the one thing. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm not I'm in gl- the minority because I'll I'm tell you this I'm glad you have your Chevy army. OK. Christmas vacation. This is the audience meter. Eighty six percent vacation. Eighty five percent European vacation. Forty nine percent. That's not critics. That is just uh, people. The people. And you know that I am the voice of the people on this show. I am embracing it. I am the people. Wow. And what I can deduct from your sentence is that critics are not people. (laughs) Uh, Amy, I am so happy to uh, get back into it with you in a brand new year. And boy, oh boy, we are kicking off our first episode of 2022 with a good one. Are you ready for it? So, uh, shall we, uh, unspool it, say? The year is 1996. Nintendo 64 is launched in Japan and quickly is dubbed the best home gaming system. DVDs are launched to the public. Ask Jeeves has started and kids are begging Santa for a Tickle Me Elmo. Mad cow disease is rampant in England, leading to the mass slaughter of herds of cows and new laws prohibiting the sales of beef on the bone. Windows 4 is released, as is Internet Explorer 3, and the first version of the Java programming language. Uh, Princess Diana of Wales is stripped of the title of Her Royal Highness because she divorces Prince Charles. The hot films of the year are Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, The Birdcage, and today's film, Fargo. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Fargo. It is written and directed by Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, a.k.a. the Cohen brothers. Uh, It is the small, very small, very bloody story of a timid man named Jerry, who's played by William H. Macy, who hires two kidnappers, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, to hold his wife for ransom so that he can squeeze the ransom money out of his mean father-in-law. Things very quickly go awry. Many people end up shot. One person ends up axed and thrown into a wood chipper. But there is... Despite all of this chaos, a calm and placid cop on the case, Francis McDormand's Marge Gunderson, who toddles around in the snow, solving the escalating crimes while being seven months pregnant. Take a listen. Okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. What about the other fella? He was a little older. You know, he looked like the Marlboro Man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But maybe I'm saying that, you know, because he smoked a lot of Marlboros. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like a subconscious type of thing. Oh, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. Fargo was released on March 8th, 1996 as... 
the little low-budget film that would salvage the Coen brothers' career after they had a string of expensive period kind of flops, like the Hudsucker Proxy. It worked. Almost immediately, Fargo, like, not only was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, won a bunch of Oscars, it was voted on the very first 1998 AFI Top 100 list. And 10 years later, when the second list came around, it was voted off, which is why we're only talking about it now. So what else was going on in the zeitgeist the weekend that Fargo was released? Well, the number one song on the Billboard charts was a romantic little ditty about death by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men called One Sweet Day. And it went a little bit like this. You might be wondering, Paul, what possible connection might there be between Mariah Carey and Fargo? Well, I will tell you. Ten years ago from this very day, Mariah Carey hosted a contest that she called the 14 Days of Forever Love, where she asked people on her Facebook group to tell their own stories, write it out for everybody, and the couple that was voted the most romantic would get a two-week trip to the Caribbean. And the winner, it was a couple from Fargo. Congratulations, couple from Fargo. I would say that this couple single-handedly salvaged their town's reputation from being like a crazy slapstick murderville to a happy marriageville. So here is Mariah congratulating the romantic Fargoians. Incredibly heartfelt congratulatory wishes to the lambs who won the Caribbean vacation. I mean, come on, you're going, it's actually it's one lamb, but you're going to the Caribbean. I want to go, like I don't want to go to the Caribbean. You're going. You won. You won. And I can't even express how happy I am for you. Now, I want to ask you, Paul, do you think she even bothered to actually learn their names? Oh, God, no. I mean, but didn't she do enough? I mean, just being acknowledged by Mariah is a big deal. I don't think that she probably knows most people's names that interact with her on a daily basis. So then let's thank Amber and Brett Nelson for themselves rescuing the reputation of Fargo and turning it into a town for lovers. Thank you, Nelsons. Amy, let's get into it. This movie uh, is phenomenal. I think that you and I can just jump out and agree to that right out of the gate, right? It's good. Oh, wow. That's pretty wow. good, don't you know? It's fine. Wow, pretty good. Pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, it's a perfectly okay. nice little movie. All right, well then, let me ask you this question. Do you think it was fair to be taken off the AFI list? Yes. Wow. And here is why. I would say that Fargo is perhaps one of the least Coeny Coen Brothers movies. It's like they're most, you know, naturalistic. They're having the least fun behind the camera. They're, you know, shifting tones a little bit. Like, this movie, when it came out, everybody was kind of flabbergasted that the Coens made a movie where they didn't feel like they were making fun of everybody in the cast, where they had kind of like a warmer heart towards humanity a little bit, at least the, the humanity of Marge Gunderson. And so I think that a lot of the reaction to Fargo was just that it felt like unique in the Coens catalog. 
And they wanted to reward them for being kind of nicer Americans and less cynical. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to pick out like the Representative Cohen because their career is so shifting. Every time they make one kind of movie, they have to immediately make the next kind of movie. So you never know exactly what to predict from them. But I would say that this is a a lesser, not a lesser Cohen in terms of talent, but a lesser Cohen in terms of the amount of Cohen that it feels like is in the film. I mean, you compare it to something like Raising Arizona, which we did on the show, or The Big Lebowski, those feel more Cohen to me. Amy, I, I can see where you have this feeling, right? This movie isn't as weird or bizarre or as idiosyncratic as a lot of Coen Brothers films are. But I would argue in many ways, Fargo is the perfect sample platter of a Coen Brothers film. You have these amazing characters, this very unique location, this um, mix of satire and violence and just these twists and turns that are so unique. And also you get a little sampler platter of uh, actors they love to work with. So you you really get to see so much here. And watching Raising Arizona, I was always thinking about Fargo. And then watching Fargo, I'm thinking about Raising Arizona. And then I'm starting to think about all my other favorite films. In a way, watching Fargo made me excited about the Coen brothers. I was like, oh, this is everything that I love. It felt like I was coming home. Fargo, to me, is the most Coen Brothers film because it represents so much of what they do in this compact piece of filmmaking that truly is so accessible, but at the same time, so incredibly unique. It's so crafty. It's so well acted. It's so fun that I guarantee you that just like The Godfather or for some people, Shawshank Redemption, when this movie is on, you just sit down and you can fall into any part of it because it has a rhythm and it is structured in a way where it feels so familiar and so fun. You're telling me mm-hmm. that if three channels in a row had Fargo on, Raising Arizona on, and The Big Lebowski on, you'd probably keep the channel on Fargo? Well, if you're asking me what my favorite movie is from the Coen brothers, I'd say Hudsucker Proxy, but that's not going to get on anyone's I know, list. I like Hudsucker Proxy too. Uh, but I like. I think it's interesting to talk about Fargo in, in the context of Hudsucker Proxy, which to me, I've never understood why that movie was such a flop, but like they it's such came a out fun of it movie. kind of panicked and like, we need to have a hit. We need to have something to do to kind of prove that we're not like the expensive guys who make movies nobody cares about. But by the way, they almost didn't make Fargo. Big Lebowski was supposed to be next and they had an issue with getting that ready to go. So they moved to Fargo. You could argue without Fargo, there would be no Big Lebowski. There probably wouldn't be the popularity of the Coens in the way that they are now. This allowed them, I think, a lot of creative flexibility and it, it put them yeah. on a lot of people's radars. For sure. And, I mean, it like it made money like they they made Fargo for a budget as low as almost anything they'd done since Blood Simple, their very first yeah. film. And so they're able to like make a ton of money on this and get all of the Oscar nominations because people because it is a good film. It's a good and, film. It's, and, it's, it's a Radisson. It's pretty good. Wow. It's a You call this movie a Radisson? See, I disagree with that because... That's a high compliment, isn't it? Mm, well, depends on where the Radisson uh-huh. is. Uh, all right. I, I, I am going to go toe-to-toe with you here. I'm going to answer your question. Is this my favorite out of those three? 
Big Lebowski might be the one that I would be putting first and then Raising Arizona and then Fargo as far as what I really enjoy as uh, I love those performances and all those films. But that's my personal preference. If I'm picking, if I'm trying to sit back and go, what do the aliens want to see? I think this is a perfect representation of the Coen brothers to an audience who has never seen the Coen brothers. And I will say, watching it last night, I was like, damn, this movie is so much better than I remember it. Like, I think because there's a lot more flash and there's a lot more weirdness and there's a lot more fun in their other films, this one kind of is put in a category of, oh, yes, it's the pedestrian Coen brothers. It's a it's a whodunit. It's a thriller. It's a, you know, it, it kind of is put off to the side like you were doing. But when you actually sit and watch it, it is just phenomenal. Like, it truly is it's so tight. It's so lean. The performances are great. Roger Deakins' cinematography in this is amazing. We live in a world of true crime stories, right? And you would think, oh, well, Fargo just feels like we're repeating this or in this. And it doesn't. Like, right now, we couldn't be more... Like, if this movie came out today, it would be gigantically popular. Again, without a doubt. Well, Yeah. It's a perfectly good movie. It is a, a perfectly perfect good movie. It's a perfectly good movie. Like, I I enjoy Fargo. I'm not trying to come in all hot like I hate Fargo and putting Fargo in the wood chipper at all. It everything that I admire about Fargo is the quietness of it, is like kind of the singularity. That the, the Coens decided to make a movie that is with that's crammed with murder, but to take away all of the kind of like drama or like the visceral audience kind of gleeful reaction. Like oh, we're watching these killers and oh, they're going to kill some people and oh, what's going to happen? And oh, I can't wait. And oh, here's that like kind of tough as nails cop. You know, there's the lady cop coming in and barging around and solving problems. Like everything that this kind of usual procedure does, whether it's like on TV or on film, the Coens really studiously avoid. They want to make a movie that is about what is how does crime actually play out when it happens? Like crime is not thrilling. Crime is not like sellable. I mean, this movie come, comes out two years after Pulp Fiction and it feels kind of like a counterpoint to it. Like not every bullet is a punchline, you know, not everything is like made to be cheered at. And yet they, they managed to do that to kind of get that message across that crime is sad and pitiful and can be resolved without a lot of drama and bad guys do get locked away and come away with a movie that I feel like has a strong moral order, you know? So where, in a way, where, what you're saying is in a world in which this movie has been made a million times, these two visionary directors come in, are able to reinvent it, not fall into any of the tropes that fell before it, but yet make something completely unique and different and incredibly engaging that not only gives you what you want, but gives you something entirely different than you've ever seen before. Interesting. Yeah. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We should just talk about it from the accent point of view, like the setting. Like, would this movie work without the accents or without the Minnesota? I think that that's a large part of this story. And it's not just the comical part of the story, but it's about what this movie represents. This movie is about, it's a thriller with manners in a way, right? Because everyone appears so nice. And that adds such a level to this film, right? That it is a central part of what, you know, leads our detective uh, Marge Gunderson to figure out what is actually going on, but like, what do we hide behind our smiles? And I think that is such an interesting point of view, because if you took this and put this anywhere else, it would not be as engaging. I, don't, I really don't think it would be. I think it would become more pedestrian. Well, yeah, I think it's the setting, but and I, and I think it's the stakes. I think it is that this is a movie with very modest stakes where all of the problems happen because of like, kind of inconsequential little things. You know, that this is not like a grand thriller caper film where like people are after hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, the the original plan for the money is like $80,000. That's all that William H. Macy wants is like $80,000. Such a modest amount. And so, yes, the setting plays a very big part of the film, but I also think it speaks to something that is way more interesting, which is, who are we really like? And that I think is the interesting thing. Like this is basically a community in which everyone wears masks. You know, they don't know that they're wearing masks this is the way that they live, but they all are so nice and polite and sweet and kind. But yet in that world, there still are these, you know, uh, evil things. These, you know, these uh, incredibly uh, devious criminal things going on. And I think what that does is add like a whole nother layer to it. Like the underworld is represented by, you know, uh, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare who come in and feel so out of place. But in a weird way, they are the least devious and the most lunkheaded. Like they're just the, they're truly just a blunt object running around in this town. But all the machinations have been put together and all the infighting and backbiting is all under the guise of politeness. I don't know. I, can let's just talk about the movie as it is, because like, sure, you're right. Like the, it, it is distinctive in what it says about violence, you know, and what it says about like crime. Like, I love that this is a movie that makes a point of showing that the stakes that upend lives can be like really small and kind of like pathetic in a way. Like here, I mean, here are the things that kind of get people in trouble. They get the time wrong by like an hour. Uh, Steve Buscemi doesn't want to pay a, a $4 parking fee. You know, they forget to take dealer tags off the license plates. I mean, I just saw this movie, um, The 355, you know, and it's all about like mm -hmm. going around the planet with like espionage and who's got the gizmo and who's getting stabbed in the souk and blah, 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 blah. From the and producers like of Ocean's Eleven, Jason Bourne and a guy who once saw James Bond movie comes 355. Exactly. And I feel like we're inundated all the time with movies where like adventure has to take place in like all these in capital letters, basically. And in ways that I don't care. Like, I mean, a movie that ends with like a bunch of people like machine gunning each other to death, which is like most movies. It's fine. 
And sometimes it can even be well done, but I find it like super unrelatable. And well, I so mean, yeah, this is a movie where like I admire that they have tried to make the most human version of a crime story. You it's know, a place but- in the sun in a way, right? It's like this idea of like something that seems easy and then gets more and more complicated because truly like true crime or the majority of true crime is this. Oh, I killed my wife because I thought the babysitter liked me. I mean, I literally saw an MSNBC, I don't call them documentaries. That seems like high, high like a, that seems like a real uh, lauding word to call one of those things. But like I saw a news story on MSNBC about that. Like, you know, like you see that all the time. Like, oh, I didn't think anyone would catch me there. I remember there was one guy who like chopped up his wife and spread her all around the forest. And then the cops started searching the forest. He went back out into the forest, collected her body parts, put them in a Tupperware in the uh, garage. Then they came to search his house. They opened up the Tupperware and he walked out the front door and just kept on walking. Like most true crime that we get obsessed with, like that guy with the jeans, uh, you know, he is going to tell you a story that is very much like this all the time. So I don't know if this is them seeing the trend of what true crime is and going, let's tell a simpler story because it isn't all about machine guns. It is about $80,000. It is about something dumb and not about this grand scheme of like drug lords and kingpins and all this kind of bullshit. And it also, you know, I think like when we watch like true crime stories, you, I predict this about you. I predict this about you. This is nothing about you personally. I just predict this about people who like to watch like, Crime movies and crime stories. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll admit it. Don't you watch these kind of things and you're like, you know, I think I could have gotten away with that. Like you watch crime and you're like, you know, here's what I would have done differently. Here's their mistake. Oh, yeah. There's like this visceral thrill that you get when you watch people like run around with guns and figure out like how to how to get everything they want in society. And you're like, you want to embrace the stupidest criminals like we're, you know, the Darwin Awards, this idea of like, I could have done it better. I don't want to do it. And I'm afraid is my neighbor one of those people like it it plays into all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also shows how quickly you have no control over it. Just the fact that He doesn't have their cell phone number. He can't put a stop. Like, things are starting to go well, and he can't stop it because he doesn't have their cell phone number. Like, that, the whole movie would be remedied with that one piece of information. Oh, it's like Romeo and Juliet. If he just knew that she was faking her own death. Spoiler alert. I mean, but yeah, like, what Ethan Cohen said, like, when the movie came out, what really interests him in doing this story is that, like, this is his response. Criminals belong to the strata of society that is least equipped to face life and that that is the reason why they're caught so often. You know, that people do desperate things because they are desperate and because they're not thinking straight, that the world is not populated with criminal masterminds, like as much as like the late night news wants you to think that there's like burglars with hacksaws outside your door. The fact is they really rarely aren't. And the idea that they would be would be bizarre. Like when William H. Macy's wife is just like watching TV and there's a guy in a mask and it's like, she doesn't get up and she doesn't immediately run because it's just strange. Like we're told that this happens all the time, but it actually doesn't happen all the time. But at the same time, the way that she reacts is, you know, she bites the criminal's hand, right? She does the thing like, just bite him, just bite him. Then she runs upstairs. She gets gets on the phone. She hides in the shower. In many respects, she does everything that you might think to do if you were in a theater watching it and going like, oh, hide there. That's what I would have done. And even with that, 
she creates her own demise by falling down the stairs, right? She gets trapped up in in the in the shower in the curtain. In the shower like, curtain, yeah. Because you can't plan everything. Like you can't do it right. You know, like if I was like if I was running from my life, I know for a fact I would fall down. I'm very clumsy. You know, and so there's something in that wife where like she actually is better at rescuing herself in a way even than her husband. I mean, there's like this interesting parallel thing, right? Where like when William H. Macy is arrested at the end of the movie, he's a, he's caught doing the exact same thing she was trying to do. Like he was trying to get out of a bathroom through the window. Um, but she was smart enough to be like, you know what? This isn't going to work and hide in the shower. And William H. Macy is like yanked out of the window, like screaming and looking pathetic because he at least didn't even think to hide. I like I like the wife, and I think the movie does like a. Um, She's fantastic makes, in yeah. it, and and she takes every little moment, you know, when she is watching the TV and reacting to that local news, or just making dinner. The way she reacts to her son going to McDonald's, like I don't want to say chewing the scenery because that always implies like you're stealing focus. She's making the most out of every bit of her performance, and it feels so realized without being over the top. And I think that that is. I think it really across the board, everyone is in this great zone and where maybe in other Coen Brothers films, there are a lot of heightened characters here. Everyone feels right on the line. Like they're not popping off it. Like they are believable and real. No, it's true. But like, imagine the framework of how this story might more normally be told. Like you are the wife who's just been kidnapped by your husband, right? Because mm -hmm. don't mo most movies try to look around to figure out like who can be like the hero, who can be the victim, like who can give us like the visceral thrill of knowing the story. I think a lot of people are going to put that camera with the wife, you know, they're going to shoot stuff like the wife being blindfolded and making a break for it when they get to the cabin and she like bursts out of the car and starts running. They're going to shoot that with drama, right? Like, oh, you're on her side. Oh, come on. You can do this wife. You got it. And instead, what the Coens do is like, watch how clumsy it is to try to run in the snow while you're blindfooted and then just have Steve Buscemi laugh at her. They turn something that would be thrilling into something kind of sad and pathetic. Because I feel like there's a way where you could try to criticize this movie and say this woman is like a true, pure victim in this film. And the movie, you know, kind of ignores her, honestly. Like she puts a bag out of her head. I think the actress herself had most of her scenes at a certain point just done with a stunt double. It was like, you're not even speaking. Like we just have a bag of your head. You can go home. Right. And then the movie pretty much like ignores her. From that point on, she's like left in the corner and she dies off camera. And I find that but you hear so... her in the trunk and you like, like well, she yeah. is treated like a piece of property. Like she is there, she's treated really... like, like the equipment to get the story going. And I think that movie, I think it's actually saying that in a way where if you feel creepy about it, that's sort of the point. Like she's treated as just a, a prop. You know, and, and that's exactly how her husband treated her. She's a prop to get money and nobody else is thinking about her and like her needs. And the movie is like, yeah, nobody's thinking about her. And I want you to see that, by the way, that we're not we're not going to even think about her either. And I think what that even goes to show you, too, is. The husband had a very 
Simple Plan. And by the way, Simple Plan, another movie that feels very Coen-esque. It's not a Coen Brothers film, uh, but also has a, a few similarities to this film as well. But I'll just have these bad guys hold on to my wife. She's going to be fine. I'm going to get my $80,000 and I'm the smartest one here. But what he doesn't realize is he's making a deal with the devil. And this is what all true crime is. Like by bringing these people in, these murderers, like, you know, Peter Stormare literally shoots that cop in the head. That was it. Then hunts down the other couple that flips off the road. Like he is a brutal murderer. So how do you think he's going to treat this person? Like once she leaves William H. Macy's side and goes into that world, she is not a person. They don't care about her. They want their money. They want whatever they were promised. And so I think there's something really interesting about that idea of what your property is, not property, but I'll just say it like in that word, like what is important to you versus what is important to somebody else is really drawn out here too. Like that's another part of the simple plan that no one thought about. Like there was no, like these men don't care. They don't care. Like, and then, and he didn't think it through. Like, I don't think that William H. Macy, uh, you don't see any scene where he doesn't love his wife. You don't see him, you know, flirting with other women. You just basically see him as a desperate man. I, I don't, I don't feel that he wanted her hurt at all. No, I don't think so at all. And that's what I think is interesting about, about that character, Jerry, is he's just a guy who hasn't thought about any of this. Like he hasn't really thought more than one and a half steps ahead. Somebody is like, hey, how's your son doing? And he's like, oh my God, literally have not thought about how my my young son will handle his mother getting kidnapped in our own home. And will he feel unsafe? And even having it brought to his attention, he's only dimly aware of it. Like there's something I find almost charmingly optimistic about Jerry. I wouldn't want to be married to him, but that he just has this certainty that things will work out. You well, know, because in his mind, it. in his mind, he has figured out the perfect plan, but he's not reacting to anything that's actually going on around him, which I think is part of the whole fun of why we get caught up in true crime, right? Because the plan is simple. I'm going to go to a parking lot. I'm going to hire someone to kill my husband, or I'm going to go over here. I'm going to take my wife out on a boating trip. I'm going to push her over the edge. No one will know the difference. Like you think you've outsmarted the system. And because he's not playing, like there's like a thing with improv, like you're reacting to the last thing that happened. Right. And he is working off a script and everyone else around him is improvising. He's not changing his script at any point. And I think that, that what, that's what makes him actually a more tragic character because it's not like he wants any of this stuff. He like His hubris that he has got it figured out actually creates more and more problems. Like he didn't get the number. He didn't, he didn't think of an escape plan. Like he didn't think of anything. And then you get this moment where he just simply runs away. Like how he was going to deal with the dealers. He only had one plan. And once it falls apart, he's done. Like, so he really is a perfect encapsulation of the idiot criminal who's not an idiot, but just thinks, Oh, yeah, I figured this out. And you can't figure it out. I think this movie is like crime will take over, right? Like, like you can't control anyone. All of a sudden, these things start to happen. And once that domino effect is going, everything starts to snowball and then you're done. Well, I mean, and the tragedy of Jerry is that he's doing all of this to prove that he's not an idiot. 
Right. You know, he has this father-in-law who thinks he's stupid, who doesn't trust him with anything, who treats him like just sort of a moron who thinks that he would just like hand him $75,000 to like buy a, a piece of property, who thinks that his wife is like definitely married down. He didn't even think through that. Like right when he yeah. just wants the money and he wants to collect all the profit. And when the when the father who I, I know you said that he is like mean, but he's not mean. He's just firm. Well, right? he, like he, just, he alone is not doing Minnesota nice. Right. Right. I think what he's doing is he's not calling him a fucking idiot or he's just being firm. Like he's like a football coach. Right. He's like, nope. Talk to so and so do that. Like he's not. You're right. He's not doing the song and dance. Well, but he's he's talking through his meanest thing comes by omission. His meanest thing is when William H. Macy says, I just want to get this piece of property so I can take care of my family. And the dad is like, well, your wife and son will always be fine. Deliberately leaving him out. Well, he, sa- he says that. he says the son will always be fine. Only the son, That's not I, his wife. I thought he but, said the wife too, but either way, no, he no. He not, said I, he said just the son. And but I will say this. But either way, he doesn't say Macy. It's like his way of being cruel is just by leaving him out. He doesn't have to say you're a fucking idiot, but by not saying I'll help you, that right. is the I guess that is Minnesota mean. Then well, I guess there's sure. And I, and I think there's varying degrees of that. But I, I guess, like, he even has a number two to deliver most of the bad news. Like, his number two is there with the reality check. You know, he's always like, well, we thought this. Well, what's the finder's fee? Like, he is going through another person. He won't even have those direct conversations, which, you're right, it's not nice, uh, but it is you know, it is this other proxy. Like he can't even have that kind of conversation, that kind of blunt conversation. Even though he is pretty blunt, he needs somebody else there to, I think, navigate through that. But I, I think to the larger point, what we're talking about here is the faces that we show to the outside world versus who we are behind our masks. And the mask of the Minnesota nice is such an interesting twist on this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if there is a weapon Jerry has brought to this fight, it is his belief that his ability to speak Minnesota nice will get him out of everything. That by speaking Minnesota nice, he can get out of the fact that like, oh, there's this car missing and what is the serial number? And oh, here's this cop who's interrogating you. And oh, no, I really have to convince my father-in-law that I need to be the one to like be on the phone call. He keeps trying to use his Minnesota nice on people and he realizes it doesn't work. Like it never works for him. He just gets more and more desperate. I mean, what do you, can I ask you something like while we're talking about this? What do you make of that scene where you see Jerry at work and there's that couple that comes in and the husband is furious because Jerry has told him that he wasn't going to have to pay for like this special sealant on the car, but he does have to pay for the special sealant on the car. And then Jerry is like acting kind of like passive and ineffectual, like, oh, let me ask my boss. I don't know what we can do about this. And instead of doing that, he just like goes, says something random to his boss that catches his boss off guard. And like comes back and sort of shrugs like he he knows that he's not helping this couple and pretending like he's helping this couple. And it makes you kind of get this insight into how he uses passivity to get what he wants. But even then he's yelled at for it and called a terrible person. Like there's something in I find that scene interesting because it's like they make a point of including it. A scene where like we see Jerry in the context of other people And we see how he deals with aggression that isn't even about, like, his wife getting kidnapped. And he just sort of wanders away and then, like, lies to people and then lets himself get screamed at. 
I think there are a couple scenes in this film, and that being one of them, that really underscores such a larger story point, which is Jerry is not smooth. Take the Minnesota nice out of it. Like, Jerry thinks that he is a fast talker. Jerry thinks that he can hang out with these criminals. Jerry has hubris. And at every given point, even in his job, that he is not all the time the employee of the month, because when you go onto that board, he's not all over it. It's like one month, it seems like. He he can't even do it there. He's not respected there. And for him to not even see, I can't even do this in my daily life, but then he tries to play his father-in-law, he tries to play the criminals, he tries to play uh, Marge Gunderson, he continually fails. He never, you never see him successfully pull it off. Yeah, he never gets a win. He never gets a win. He's just a character who cares around, carries around that rage that we see, like in the scene where he like takes a, a scraper to his car windshield. I want to drill down on this because getting a win is something different than trying to manipulate people and not being able to do it, right? He has ill intent and he's trying to like pull one over on someone. He's trying like, it's not like, oh, this poor schmo, nothing ever goes right for him. No, he in every interaction is trying to bamboozle someone, right? It's not like he can't get a win. It's he can't, he is not. He's not a good salesman. He's not a good salesman. He's not a good businessman. He's not a good thinker, right? He is bad. And like, it doesn't mean that he is a bad guy, but the hubris to not see that he can't even do this on the barest level, which is selling cars, to me, speaks volumes. Like, Because there's another version of it where it's like, oh, he's a sad sack. He's not a sad sack. He walks around like he is king shit, <laughs> But he's so stupid that it doesn't even affect him. Like the continual beatdown by everyone. He's like, no, I got it. I got it. Like, and that to me, I think, makes him an engaging character. He's a low status character who thinks he's high status. Well, that's what Um, I think is so interesting about being William H. Macy. I mean, this is really like the movie where he breaks out, right? Like, I mean, up until then, like he's had like bit parts in movies. He's a mammoth guy. He does like mammoth plays on stage. Then he gets like some bit parts when mammoth does some of his movies like in film. But this is really the part that like makes him and I would say like sets a course of his life. I mean, well, this is him talking about like how he really, really, really needed this part. I wanted it. Oh, God, I wanted it, which is really a dangerous thing for an actor. You want it too badly. And oof, it's hard to audition well when you want it that badly. But I went in and uh, I read. I thought I did well. And they said, that's real good. Thanks. Thanks. And I was on pins and needles because I knew it was Joel and Ethan Cohen. Everyone was going to see it, everyone in the biz, whether it was a hit or not, everyone was going to see it. I was born to play that role. I understood it completely. I mean, it was instantaneous that I knew what that guy was about and how to play it. And um, I found out they were going to New York to see some actors. 
So I got my jolly little Lutheran ass on an airplane and I flew to New York and crashed that audition. I walked in and I said, they said, oh, Bill. And I said, yeah, I'm worried about you guys. I'm afraid you're going to screw up your movie by casting someone else in this role. They went, huh, you want to read again? And I said, yeah, and I read well. And um, I had worked on the dialect, which I think was important to them. And um, I said to Ethan, um, if you don't give me this role, I'm going to shoot your dog. He just got a puppy. <laughs> uh, he laughed, thank God. I love that. And just to add some context, the original actor that they were going after was Bill Pullman, which would have been interesting as well. So Bill Pullman was who the Coen brothers wanted. Yeah. And, uh, but Bill and, Pullman looks a little bit more like a guy who could pull it off. Like, right? William H. Macy doesn't look like, I mean, Bill Pullman played a president. Exactly. And I think it works so much more for this character. He's not, he can't use his sex appeal. He can't, he can't pull it off. And it's sort of like, I am a criminal mastermind trapped in this small town, or I'm this businessman. I'm this smart guy. Like, He's just, there's nothing that we see of him that makes us think that he is anything but a complete and utter failure. And the only thing that he has is confidence. And I think most criminals do that, have this confidence. I'll get away with it. I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. And it's it's something that we see time and time again. Why did you get caught? Because, well, I didn't actually think to do X, Y, and Z. And so when we watch these murder documentaries or listen to these murder podcasts, we think about these things. And maybe what you're saying is, I know you were nervous about saying, oh, are you a person who does this? I think what it's saying is like, actually, we are people who think about others and how we're reacting. Like most of these criminals are not sociopaths. And there's a part of him that is a sociopath in the sense that he can't even see how the world is reacting to him. Maybe I should say he's a narcissist, not a sociopath. He's a complete narcissist. And I mean, which is fascinating, like a passive chihuahua acting narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the truth is, I just didn't want to accuse you on this podcast of ever thinking about how you would get away with killing your oh, wife because no, I know I'll there's enough it. tension between me and June, but given the fact that like <laughs> she doesn't get to watch good movies. So I was uh, very nervous about that. No, I don't no. want to wound up good up. No, as long as June can get in her four to five hours of Bravo a night, we're okay. Um, all right, so the yin to the yang here is Marge, Marge Gunderson. Gunderson. Yeah, right. like I would say that Marge has the same level of optimism as 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 but Jerry she's does. good. But she actually gets everything done. Like she's I mean, the op. She literally yeah. is the black to his white because yeah. she doesn't speak about what she does. Like the end scene of the film is so beautiful because she's talking about her husband's stamp. She just foiled a major, like a major crime. Like yeah. the biggest case of her career. And it's not even brought up. No, it's not. Which kind of makes me think, I don't know if I like their marriage. Can I be honest about that? Oh, I like, like their marriage. Really? I don't know. I mean, don't you think that her husband like should maybe ask her a little bit about her life? I mean, all he does is like bring her food. They really just have a food based relationship. He feeds her. They sleep next to each other at night. Like, oh, no, I, no, no. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's to all right, me, well, here, it seems but like here's, a terrible, but, I would I would hate to be in that marriage. So that actor, John Carroll Lynch, who plays her husband, is another one of these actors in the film that has limited scene time, but is fantastic. And he is one of my favorite actors as well. Just always kills it. But he 
and the Coens and Francis McDormand sat and talked about these characters and what the relationship was. And what they had decided was that one of them had to leave the force when they got married, right? So he was the one who was forced to uh, retire, right? So uh, that's why I think he's so familiar in the police precinct. And he quit the job and took up painting. Now, I don't know why he needed to quit before they had a kid, but that was what they uh, decided for the character. So I really like that idea that at least between the director and the actors, he was someone who sacrificed himself to do the job that he liked because his wife was better at it and he was going to go do something that he was going to be passionate about. And she supported him. And I and I like looking at it through that lens, right, that they are they are supportive of each other. He's supportive of her being a police officer. She's supportive of him, uh, you know, doing his painting. And, they are and, supportive, yeah. but doesn't it seem to be a little boring? I I would not have but, guessed I mean, that he was an about the place. from what we see, like on on the camera. But I, I okay, I mean, I liked. I, I, I think I, it's I got sweet it. that he wakes up and makes her breakfast, and then he also knows that he'll get to eat the breakfast. Yeah, but I think he's also like looking out for her. She's pregnant, right? And she's going to work, and it's cold out, and he's taking care of her, making sure that when she gets home, like when you see her throughout the film when she's on assignment. You know, no one's taking care of her. Not that she needs to be taken care of, but what I liked about it was he was nurturing to her. He didn't care about the other stuff. He just cared about her. Wasn't asking like, oh, what's going on? Trying to get into it. It's like they, and and yes, I think part of it is the Minnesota picture of like is boring good. And then let's talk about that because I think that is a part of Marge's story as well. I think that her realization at the end is like, things are okay. Like, this is a beautiful day. But even Marge has this moment, not to say she's going to cheat on him, but there is that moment in the movie where she meets her old high school friend. And as she's going in, we see her in a completely different light than we've seen her in the entire film. Like, we see her pretty much covered up the entire film. She's doing her job. She's being nice to people. People like her. But we see her actually nervous. And the only scene that she's really nervous in, there's two, meeting her old high school uh, friend and when she takes out the gun to finally fire on Peter Stormare. Like, those are the two moments where you see her nervous. That's funny. I didn't see her as being that nervous in the scene where she, like, talks to her classmate. Like, I actually was really stricken by her kind of confidence. Like, there's that moment where they're sitting down and she's, like, really kind of setting... The parameters, she's like, I will not be drinking at this you know, very nice Radisson. I will be having a Diet Coke. And then he tries she to She can't like, drink. She's pregnant. Well, yeah. And then he tries to sit next to her on the on the bench and they have this like kind of awkward scene. Well, what about you, Mike? Are you married? You got kids? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was married. Uh, I-, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. Oh, uh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, uh, no, no, just so I can see. I don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure. I, I understand. <laughs> I mean, the way she just sticks up for what she wants, but then figures out how to use her niceness so he doesn't feel that bad about it. I, I well, think part of I mean, just but, watches like Marge, you know, take care of his emotions and then like take care of like her husband's painting and console him that the three cent stamp is very nice. And I'm, 
and I want Marge to be, to be taken care of as more than just food. But well, maybe that's but, what this guy does. Maybe this guy wants to talk to her about her work and her husband doesn't. And he's like, what you do is pretty cool. And but it's maybe, good for her to hear that. But maybe Marge doesn't want to talk about her job. Maybe Marge isn't, is more than her job, you know? And, and there is something sweet about her relationship with uh, her husband. But I want to go to, back to that Radisson scene because I think when you first see her enter, you see her take like a deep breath. She touches her hair. She's kind of readying herself. And again, not to say that she's going to have an affair or even want to have an affair, but you see her take some pride in the way that she's looking and she's sitting down and you see that there's an air of nervousness there. And I think what that actually shows is she is very much like everyone else. You wouldn't think that she would even have this thought in her head, but to show that moment of her just maybe I want to look good. I want to, I want to. Even, you know, now where the, the scene goes is different, but I think there's this moment before she sees him where she is down to flirt, right? Or or are open to that idea. And that also shows like, oh, she, she's hiding something behind that face too. And I think part of her realization, part of her journey is like when she's having that speech at the end of Peter Stormare, it's not about Peter Stormare, it's about her and what she wants and it's kind of saying like, okay, yeah, we all have these feelings, but look at the day. Look, it's a beautiful day. Like, I think that she's coming to a realization there and that, and that, that moment in the script, yes, it, it helps her unlock the story, the mystery. But I also think it reveals that she also has that same tendency as well. Like if I could do this, couldn't someone else do this? I don't know. I don't see any of that. I, I kind of wish I really? did. Like. I mean, I like that the script includes things like the hotel scene with her late classmate because it's nice to get to see her too through other people's eyes. I mean, that feels to me like a companion piece to watching to watching like Jerry not try to figure out how to get that couple like a discount on their car that he's like mildly scamming them on. This chance of seeing people like outside of the drama, you know, who they really are, like who they yeah. are, who they think they are outside of this predicament that they're in, which is a heightened scenario. But I will say this to you as well. This high school classmate that she meets is one of the few people in the film, with the exception of William H. Macy at the end, who shows emotion, right? He, he first of all, is prideful, talking about his accomplishments. And then he talks about his wife who's dying of cancer and starts crying. And he's like, really just like kind of lost himself. And then you find out a scene later, he was lying, and I know that that's the crux of, again, her solving the mystery. What appears one way isn't always what it is. But I thought it was also interesting in a movie where everyone is, uh, their emotions are cloaked because of their Minnesota nice. Here's someone who actually shows an emotion and and we're revealing that that is a complete lie. I just, I was kind of fascinated by that too. It's like the only person who truly has an outward emotion um, and it's completely made up. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Like in a way it's a counterpart to like William H. Macy deciding how to practice like his phone call where he calls and like tells people that like his wife has been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's both scenes where men are using women as a way of getting some other sort of side quest that they want, you know, like this idea that like wives are to them, a little bit, like, ignorable. You know, like, he could just, like, mm -hmm. curse this girl that he barely knows with, like, cancer and say she died to, like, try to get Marge to 
I don't know, maybe make out with him, hold his hand, make him feel a little better. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like he's even hoping for like a total bump, like bone down or something like that. But I mean, I wonder if like even Yanagata like practiced his crying scene over his wife in his hotel room before he like came down to the Radisson, like in, in the same way that you watch like William Mace Macy on the phone, like going over that call, like practicing it. And then even in this little scene, realizing that like this phone call he's practicing and all these different voices he's trying on, like, I'll be the stronger, tough guy. Oh no, I'll be the nervous guy. We'll get totally thrown off the way that this, as soon as like a receptionist answers and says something he's not expecting. Yeah, Wade, I, it's Jerry. Wade, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's Jean. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. I don't know what to do. It's Jean. Yeah, Wade, I, it's Jerry. I... Wade, it's Jerry. I, we gotta talk. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. Uh, uh, yeah, Wade Gustafson, please. And I do want to just like talk a little bit more about this idea that, like, what do you think about Marge not telling her husband that she's meeting up with this guy? Or, or the fact that when she meets up with him, she wants to meet at a nice place. You know, she thought, oh, was it reasonable? But, you know, she she's very smart. The first time we see her in her job, she knocks out what happened in a crime scene perfectly. She sees it all. She seems to be the only person on the force who is undisturbed by this giant crime. This is not happening all the time. I mean, one of the jokes in it is, oh, I don't think he's from here. You know, like she literally is so on the money. And so when she also, I think, plans this meeting and for whatever reason, you know, to see what a walk on the other side is like, she's a big fish in a small pond, at least in her job. She's great cop. She's in the small town. She may want to go to the big city. This, you know, so when Yanagita, you know, represents to her in many respects, like this person who lives in the big city, like she wants to, she's trying that on for size in a way. And I think what she realizes is why would you go mess up your happiness for $80,000? Like she, that $80,000 when she's telling that monologue at the end is really like, what else is out there for you? And I don't think it's settling. I think it's like the reverse of FOMO. It's like saying, I am actually very happy here to be in bed with my husband talking about his stamps. Yes, there may be this pull to go and do something bigger and better, but for what? Like to be with this weirdo who lies and and to be in this big city. Like I think that she has that feeling and it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. The monologue at the end, I, I think, is so telling about her more than the crime or anything else. It's like it's almost like Columbo diagnosing himself at the end of a murder mystery, not uh, not the actual crime. Because well, there's I, nothing. I, yeah, I want to listen to it. Like, I want to listen to like kind of her scene in the car with Stormare. Yeah. You know, which is let's play it now. It's kind of like a quiet scene because. It is a monologue, you know, like Stormare is not doing any talking. So she has he to do all the speaks. talking for the I think he has he barely... 15 lines in the yeah, whole movie. Exactly. A lot of a lot of grunts looks that mean I want pancakes. But be, but because of his silence, it the movie even scales back all of the background noise. So you really just are hear her, hearing her talk aloud to herself, like wondering why people do bad things. There's more to life than a little money, you know. 
Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. Honestly, I listen to that monologue and I don't think she walks away with an answer. I think there's something in Marge, a basic goodness chip, that is, it. is, I'm not going to say it limits her as a cop because she is an amazing cop. She's fantastic at deduction. But I think she does not understand why people do bad things. And I think she walks away from the end of this still not understanding. There's something, I think, very stubbornly innocent in her where she See, doesn't. I think you're buying into, into Minnesota mindset. nice. I think you're no, buying into Minnesota I don't nice. Think so. I don't yes. think so. I think there's something in her. She's not that naive. Okay. No, I think, I don't know if naive is the right word, but I think just unrelatable, like something kind of like alien to her. I, I don't, I don't think she could ever put on a criminal shoes. I think that she understands the criminal's mind perfectly because she's having these same scenes like are just having this so. I, you okay. see so much more in this in this mic scene than i do i see her just sort of having a night to herself but i do not see her at all debating like sleeping with this guy at all i see her i don't maybe think i don't think that she's like i a little i don't think that she's gonna cheat she on her husband yeah. but i think that she is excited to go out to this man that she hasn't seen in a while she's pregnant she wants to look her best i think that she's open to flirty. She doesn't want to tell her husband. She's kind of keeping something a secret. And I think going to the big city represents so. something big to her. I think that that being in the big city is can I ha- can I hack it here? I'm she's so good. She's so above everybody else. I, I just think I really do believe that she is the end of the movie is really about her saying, why would you mess this up? Why would you mess something up? See, um, I just I okay. don't think of her as being that curious or creative. I, mm. I I I I see her sort of I wouldn't say even like necessarily dreading having dinner with Mike, but it's like something to do. She is here. You know, like when you have a coffee date with somebody you're not totally sure you want to go and you're like you kind of psych yourself up like all right, I'm going to go in, we're going to get this coffee, it's going to be fine. I think she's more in that frame of mind. Like I I don't know. There's something about her. She sits down and like, I don't even see a minute's hesitation as soon as she looks at him where she thinks like, maybe I will feel like I'm giving him even the smallest runway to flirt with me. I think she comes in kind of knowing how to shut him down from the beginning. I just think that she, she realizes that she lives in a very insulated world, right? Where somebody wouldn't do this. It's, you know, her husband is painting a stamp. He's making her breakfast. And this experience kind of shows her a world outside of her sphere in many different ways. And But that's the opposite and, of what I like about Marge. Like, what I think is interesting about Marge is that this whole experience she goes through doesn't affect her really at all. Like, I think she comes out of this crime... 
the same person that she was when she entered it, which is what I think is interesting about it. You know, this isn't a movie where it's like, oh, it's the biggest case of my life and it's going to change my life forever. I mean, you contrast it to something like The Silence of the Lambs, you know, really similar movie also from the 90s, also about a woman tracking down this like big case. And that movie, which we like and we protected, you know, as a possibility to go up into space, you know, it's about, well, in one level, it's also about like the hardships that Jodie Foster faces as a woman, like in this business, you know, the way the mm -hmm. camera like watches the men leer at her, people second guess her, all things that the Coen brothers also leave out. Marge just seems kind of like revered is a strong word, but just equally respected. There's Margie here. She gets a coffee. Margie is just one of us. And they, they cut out all of that kind of the attention because I don't feel like the Coens feel like they need it. But that case means so much to Jodie Foster, you know, solving it, proving herself, showing that she can do this job. And I don't think this case means very much to Marge. I, I she think wants what it to does get it was, done. I think she gets she caught up in it. Life. I think she gets caught up in it and then wants to be back home. And, and I mean, look, this may be we may just round robin this debate, but I will say this to to push it forward. And that's why. And it's probably not a. uh opinion I hold by myself, I think she might be the Cohen's best character as far as fully a complete person. And I know that there are other ones that are more fun, like the dude or, or, you know, there are some great big characters, but as far as like a character that has heart and is interesting and has a unique point of view, I think that she might be up there as the best or in the top, uh, you know, two or three of the best Coen Brothers characters of all time. I mean, she's great. And like her her footprint in this movie is so big that it's shocking that she doesn't come into the movie for like over half an oh, yeah. hour. You know, like that the, the, there is no Marge. And I think the movie to me gets so much better when she's there. I think the movie's fine. I like the movie. I like the movie a lot. But when you have scenes in the car, where it's like Buscemi ragging on like Stormare for not talking. It is that Pulp Fiction problem where I'm like, oh, I've seen this kind of scene too much at this point. My apologies to Fargo, but it's like it doesn't move me the way that the film finally does whenever you have uh, whenever you have Frances McDormand kind of pad into the movie. But honestly, if you're going to I like her, I love this character. But if you put like a gun in my head, I think I might say that I prefer a different lady Cohen Brothers cop. And that would be Holly Hunter in um, in Raising Arizona. Great too. I love Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona. It's interesting that they wrote two like centerpiece roles for some of their favorite women in life. Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand even being roommates, and and they both wrote them as cops. You know, they're both cops, and I love Holly Hunter because she can be like stern and sad and emotional. She has such a huge emotional range in Raising Arizona that I think she's a totally compelling character. And like Marge Gunderson is keyed lower, like she's desaturated and lovable and charming and probably one of the top five Cohen characters that you would put on a refrigerator magnet or like a pin and people would know who you're talking about. But I don't know. I don't think she wins this hands down. I mean, again, it's all relative what you think. And I, I don't want to like be like, you're wrong. Um, I do believe that this character in many respects answers a question that many people have about the Coens, which is like, they're so cynical. They're, they're, you know, they think everybody's an idiot. And this shows like they can, they can paint this picture of a really well-rounded, interesting, 
to your point, like nice person. Like she, she's not incredibly duplicitous, but she's real. Um, and she's funny. And, and you were talking earlier about like, we fit, we sit there and we watch these murder shows and we go, we think about what we would do. Marge represents that Marge is us. And in very few Coen brothers movies, can you say, Oh, Josh Brolin is me and Hale Caesar, you know, or, or, you know, Tom Hanks is me and lady killers. I won't talk about that again, but the, uh, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like there, it manages to be so Coen brothers yet also so relatable. And I think that's why this movie was such a giant, giant hit because it gives you a taste of everything that you love about them in a package that might be a little bit more appealing, might be just a tad more palatable and not to say that movies need to be palatable. Uh, but, but I do but believe I hear, this is the, this is the Coen movie that I could show to my mom probably first. Yes. It, and she would love it. Yeah. But I, I think Marge, represents the best of us like i could only aspire yes. to be a march i'm not a march i'm not nearly as good and calm and reasonable as a march I, I i do like seeing this character though as like kind of the most beautiful gift that joel cohen could give his wife absolutely you know? i mean they meet when they're doing blood simple and i love the idea that their love affair goes back to this moment where like he is making his first movie she's doing one of her first big parts and it's like they fall in love at a time where they're both for the first time in their life doing what they want to do, making a movie. And they're just united from that moment on. And she would, you know, would crack jokes that like she had to sleep with Joel for 13 years for him to write her a part like this, for him to finally like put her in one of his movies. But this part that he gives her is lovely. And it does for her career the same thing that like William H. Macy gets out of this. You know, people really finally see Frances McDormand. I mean, she'd been around. She'd already gotten like a supporting actress nomination when you see this part done by like, have you ever seen the Fargo pilot that they did? Not like the Fargo series. That's no, there was another one, right? That they did yeah. like 1987. That was yeah. actually directed by Kathy Bates. Yeah. And they cast it. They basically made like a, a TV show pilot for Fargo that picks up like a couple weeks after the events of this movie, as though suddenly this area is like known for violent crimes that happen like every week, which really changes like the tone of the whole thing. Um, but they cast Edie Falco in the role of Marge Gunderson. And it's really bizarre watching Edie like wear basically the exact same wig, do the exact same face, show up still pregnant. She still hasn't had the baby. Like it makes you think like if this, sh if the show had been picked up, like how long was that? Were they planning on making this character be pregnant? Um, but it's kind of bizarre. You actually have to hear it. I'm going to play a clip right now. Margie Olmstead. We were in biology together, don't you remember? We were partners in the frog dissecting. Oh, well, well you know, I, I've been um, away a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, plus, I, I wasn't pregnant in high school, so... Yeah, not like the kids today. I want to play that because I think it shows... How hard it is to do that character. Edith Falco, great actress. Well, but absolutely fantastic. But it's not under the Coen brothers' eye. No. I mean, the Coen brothers made these actors work on their dialect. You know, every pause that William H. Macy has in this movie was written into the script. This is what I'm saying. Like, they brought something here. It wasn't like this is a script that they found and they brought something. Like, they understood these characters. They understood what made them tick. They understood that they were more than just the voice, right? They were more than just the accent. They were There was a point of view to these characters. And that's why I do think when Noah Hawley made Fargo for FX, 
what happened there, I don't think could have been made until Fargo comes out, which was like, what, uh, in 2014. Because Fargo, in many ways, that TV series is almost an homage to the Coen brothers. It's not an homage. It's And I think the smartest thing they did was they didn't make a Marge Gunderson character. They made something that felt of the ilk of Fargo, which was, you know, uh, you know, insurance salesman gets involved in something larger, a cop gets involved. Like, they tell a similar story, but make it incredibly unique. And it has a lot of tips of the hat to what we love about Fargo without being Fargo. It's like it's imbued with the sense of Fargo, so much so that like when the, the Coens read it, uh, they're like, yeah, that's good. And uh, Noah Hawley thought, oh, my God, they must hate it. And then later found out that that's probably the highest compliment you could get from a Cohen brother. Yeah, it's good. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. Of a detour. I mean, it does seem so funny that this Fargo has become such a brand name when, like, almost nothing in the movie even takes place in Fargo. That all no. of the drama takes place in, like, Brainerd. Brainerd. Yeah. yeah like, but they couldn't name a movie Brainerd, so uh, they yeah. had to. <laughs> I Brainerd, mean, Brainerd would have been Brainerd would have been another Hudsucker proxy. I kind of got into like I was like I'm going to look up the history of Brainerd, you know, because Brainerd mm-hmm. is a real town. And Brainerd is, yes, a town that is rumored to like have been the town that like spawned Paul Bunyan, even though they made that statue for the movie. But when you really look it up, like so many towns claim to have been like the birthplace of Paul Bunyan. I'm just going to read you a couple. People say that he is from Bemidji, Minnesota, Akeley, Minnesota, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Oscoda, Michigan, Osneke, Michigan, Steve, Michigan, St. Ignatius, Michigan. But he's, is he real? He's Wisconsin. not real, right? It was Wausau, Wisconsin, and Banger, Maine, just like Stephen King. I mean, <laughs> he could. Be I mean, real. this is this is, is no, Johnny, this, is like, uh, this is like a story. This is like an oral tradition story. This is like wherever you're from. You're like, oh yeah, Paul Bunyan was from this town, and he did this. It's like it's a fucking story. Well, you got to pick somewhere, man. I mean, <laughs> Brainerd actually has like this strange history of being like a town where a lot of violent misunderstandings take place. Like I was reading about this thing that happened in in Brainerd in 1872. It was called the Blueberry War. It's, I would say a dark story, but basically the settlers of Brainerd, um, one of the local girls went missing and the settlers decided to blame the Ojibwe Indians who lived nearby. So they captured two Ojibwe men and they just hung them in town without any evidence. And then, like, the watch people of the town noticed, like, a bit, a tribe of, like, Ojibwe people, like, approaching the town. So they freaked out. They panicked. They called in the troops from a nearby fort. They're like, there's going to be this war. And then when the Ojibwe arrived, the townspeople found out that they just wanted to sell them blueberries. And they kind of just washed their hands of, like, this whole bizarre crime. But it's, like, this place rooted in, like, murders that maybe happened and didn't happen and then, like, people blaming the wrong people and innocent people dying for no reason. 
I mean, maybe every town in America you throw a rock and they all have a story like this, but Brainerd being a small town with these kind of roots, I thought was like really interesting. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I also feel like these, the story of Paul Bunyan, right? It It is, is it a true story? It's It's not. But this idea like, oh, this happened in our town. This is, you know, there is something about the oral tradition of these stories that make you know, history fun or gives your town, maybe a town that doesn't have much, something to hang its hat on. And I do think it's interesting that this movie is, uh, well, I was not going to say bookended, but at least begun with the idea that this is a true story. That's true. It's hanging its hat on that idea too. Like this happened. This happened and happened here. And and it kind of gives the town, and, and obviously much to Fargo's chagrin, uh, they do not like the way that this movie <laughs> made them look. And I would argue this movie makes Minnesotans look like normal people. Yes, they have an accent that, you know, I w- we were saying this before the podcast started, like they became like Borat for a little bit. Everyone did those acts. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, it's like, and so I could understand like that's a self-conscious thing, but I think the Coen brothers take great care to present the people not as fucking morons. Like, you know, and again, against the Coen brothers archetype, there are people in this movie that are morons, but there are not like, it's not endemic of the culture, you know? Um, And I do think that that's interesting, but I mean, This idea of it being based on a true story, let's talk about that a little bit here, too. Well, yeah, I mean, this idea really took root. Like the Brainerd Dispatch, like the local newspaper of Brainerd and the Brainerd law enforcement team, they said that after this movie came out, they were like flooded with like phone calls and letters from people who are like, give me more details on these murders that happened. Like what happened? Oh, my God. And the thing is, is like the Coens really doubled down on saying that this is based on a true story. Like right after the movie came out, they were, inter- they were interviewed on, you know, now disgraced interviewer Charlie Rose, and he presses them on the idea that this is a true story. Here is my first question. This movie was not based on an actual crime. Who says? Was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah. And this story is completely based on a real event. Yeah, the story is the characters, you know, we we weren't interested in making a documentary and the characters are really inventions um, based on the sort of outline of events. Yeah. So we invented the characters um, um, and they're really sort of our creation and the creation of the actors who played the parts. I mean, can, can I ask you, Paul, like, when you hear the Coens Tell Charlie Rose to his face that this is real, knowing that the truth is that none of this is real and they actually made up the entire thing. Is that them being like creepy Minnesota nice Jerry just lying and trying to get away with it? Yeah. And by the way, I love it. Like they're but they're keeping the tradition, too. Like, you know. Go. Let's go back to Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan figures prominently in this film, that statue. We see it multiple times throughout. It's like, this is, believe it or not, this could have happened. I mean, there's so many elements of this story. Like, I've, I've read many internet articles where it's like, well, it could be based on this and that and this. Well, yeah, it could be based on anything. Many people have done dumb shit to their spouses and for a little bit of money. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a wild 
it's not like Ocean's Eleven. You know, this is a very simple story. I'm sure there's like 10 million podcasts that have done a similar story. Like that's my issue ultimately with true crime is it gets reductive at certain points. Like the specifics make it interesting, but you got to really dig to find those ones that, you know, like, yeah, I know where it's going. I don't, I know where it's going. So I do think that what they're doing in a way is can, you know, Besides selling a movie, I think they are all kind of having fun with that idea that it, this is a it's thing. It's a tall and, and tale. Pe- it's a tall tale like Paul Bunyan. And I mean, and they're and- telling the audience, believe this. And if you believe it, does that make the movie more accessible? I, I didn't know it was fake until many years later. You just believe it. If it says it in front of a movie, we've seen multiple movies like that based on a true story. But it's not. But oh. I love it. But it's so weird to be lied to. I mean, it makes me think of like how Caligari plays that whole like lying trick on the audience. Like I, I, I do kind of hate. But do you think it makes being... you connect the movie more? Like do you like? Do, I, I think you might. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that for myself. Like when I see it's true, I can't have. I almost don't start to question anything because I just enjoy the film. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I don't know why, but I think when we're told that a story is real, it allows the screenwriters to just write like anything to like mm-hmm. give it kind of gives them permission to do anything they want in the script because we the audience have been primed to believe that it must have happened whereas if we knew that this was like fictional from the beginning we would be like ha ha what a joke they're just making fun of all these people look at these like goofy minnesotans but it it forces us to try to extend empathy because we're like oh wow actual people died even though they didn't even though the coens are completely lying i mean And what I find a little chilling about how they lied is they really just kept it up. Like somebody asked Joel in an interview, why is it that uh, Francis McDormand doesn't enter the film until like a third of the way through the plot? And he's like, well, you know, it's a strange shape, but it just reflects the way that the events unfolded in the actual story. No, they just they just chose to do it that way. But he's like, he's using this like bizarre excuse, which... I mean, made some people mad. Like somebody, you know how e- Roger Wait. Ebert used to do the Answer Man. Yeah. Like somebody wrote into him, and they're like, "Well, now that I know that Fargo is not based on a true story, like I hate it. And why would they do this? And why would how, why would they even try to get away with this?" And Ebert wrote back that he had been talking to you know Paul Schrader, like the writer of Taxi Driver, and that Paul Schrader said that he felt like in the '90s audiences passed from the age of like the existential hero to the ironic hero. By which he said, you know, the existential hero asks if life is worth living, but the irony hero asks, who cares? And so, and he was saying, like, at this point in the 90s, there's all of these ironic movies where everything has, like, quotation marks around it, where, like, a person isn't in Schrader's world. They're not killed. They're, like, air quote killed, you know, mm-hmm. killed in a way where it's not supposed to be horrifying, killed in a way where it's kind of, like, goofy. And so he, his theory was that, like, this is the Coen brothers using the idea of a true story, like ironically, you know, that instead of like trying to give the film like gravitas, it's like kind of their joke on us, on us just believing things. Yeah. On us being kind of like sweet Minnesota nice suckers. Why would Mike Yanagita lie to us? Why would the Coen brothers lie to us? And at the end of the day, does it really matter? We all are capable of lying for our own ends. And in a way, by saying the movie is true and that's a lie, we're all a part of the same story. Everyone in this movie has been lied to. That's true. Every single person, including the audience. Including the audience. And then even this movie itself becomes like sort of a figure of like 
mythology and lie. I mean, have you heard the story of Takako Konishi? No. Okay. So Takako Konishi, she was this 28-year-old from Tokyo. And um, she was found dead in the snow, like in the snow between Fargard and Brainerd. And the story that went out in the news was that this Japanese girl, this tourist, had showed up in in Fargo with like a homemade treasure map and that she ran into oh, the cops yes. and that the, she had told the cops that she thought that what happened in Fargo, because it was based on a true story, meant that that briefcase, the million dollar briefcase was still somewhere in the snow. Mm-hmm. And so she had come out there to try to find it and she couldn't find it and like, you know, wound up dead, like hunting for the snow. And that became like this kind of mythology built around this actual person who like actually died there. And part of the problem was that, you know, like the police officer that she talked to in Fargo, you know, he, of course, didn't speak Japanese. She didn't speak English. He couldn't find a translator. Like for some reason, this police officer decided to call all the Chinese restaurants in town trying to find somebody who spoke Japanese because he thought maybe like it's the best shot that I have of finding somebody who can help me talk to this woman. But because he couldn't like it's a little unclear what she was doing with that map or what she was gesturing to. But like this this story took root of like, here's this like silly girl who took this fictional movie too seriously and wound up dying for it. I mean, the truth is, is that she had gone to Fargo uh, to commit suicide. Like she had met this American businessman who was married and he had flown her to Minnesota like three times. They'd kept, they kept going there on vacation. So she was actually there retracing the steps of this like broken love affair. And she had planned on committing suicide. She actually wrote a suicide note and mailed it to her parents back in Japan. But because of the mail, they didn't get it for three weeks. Um, and so that three weeks was just long enough for this like Fargo mythology to take over. But it is so crazy, this area being like now the story of like repeated myths, you know, Paul Bunyan, the events of Fargo, and now the events of like the life of Takako Konishi, like the girl who like, quote unquote, died because of Fargo, you know, which got turned into its own movie, you know, Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, which played at Sundance, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And you know, to its credit, tries to give her like this lovely ending in a way, like instead of ending with like seeing her dead in the snow, it ends with kind of this fantastical dream where she like finds the money and has this magical happy ending, which, you know, that's a lie. But at least they're like lying to us, to our face in a way that seems kind of sweet. Maybe that that's like Minnesota nice. And it is funny that all of this happens in a movie that that while lying to the audience does its best to like demythologize Crime and violence. Like, my favorite detail about this movie is so small. It's just, like, the smallest sound effect. I love the way that every time anybody opens a door, you hear the car door beep. I just love that. There's all these, like, quiet scenes, and it's people pulling up to, like, trade money or somebody's about to get shot. And every time mm-hmm. they open the door, you just hear that little naturalistic car beep. Like, like here it is right when the father-in-law is about to have his shootout with Steve Buscemi. Here's your damn money. <laughs> My daughter. You, you goddamn punk. I don't know why. I just, I just love that. I don't know. I feel like I, I love don't that hear too. cars beep in most movies, and to have it happen here as violence is happening. Well, I also think that what what they're very good at. And I think, you know, Quentin Tarantino does something very interesting with violence, right? Like he makes it so bombastic and it, uh, you know, it's, it's this, 
larger than life thing. And I think what this movie does is show the simplicity of it. Even when the father-in-law is shot, you just see like the feathers come out of his down jacket. The way that, you know, Buscemi is just axed to the throat. Like they're the, yeah. the wife the is that, killed like, when off the, screen. Yeah. When the cop is shot, that very first cop, that little yeah. like blood squibble out of his head. It's not a geyser. It's kind of surprisingly small and, and creepy, pathetic almost. It's neither like sexy nor it, it's just it's not performative in a way and I think that there's something really interesting about it I think we've seen that now so many more times in in cinema I think people now do that a lot more to bring a, a, a little bit of you know verite to it I mean Eddie Murphy had that bit in his stand-up routine that I loved which was always like you know someone gets shot in a movie and like ah go on without me he's like but the truth is if you got shot you're like motherfucker oh my god I'm fucking dying like you would be freaked out like and there is this idea I think especially in this time or maybe to a, a mass audience to see something so violent but yet so pedestrian is yeah. really actually more engaging right it, it is like Ooh, it's so brutal, but yet so simple. Like pulling the trigger on a gun is so simple. It's not sexy. It's not cool. Cars aren't exploding. Blood isn't geysering out. It's just, even when Buscemi gets shot across the face, like how that continues to bleed. Now his face all fucked up. And it's like, you know, it's not perfect shots. It's not, these are not, Yeah, it's not you know, artistic, like bullet wound to the cheekbone, the way like Sylvester yeah. Stallone always gets shot. It's like messy. He's got toilet paper on it. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's, you know, so I think that there's something really interesting there too. And I'm sure there are other examples of it, but I think that the Coens popularized that kind of violence, you know, um, you know, in that way, like that, like it, it actually matches the tone of the movie, you know, like you could think another director could make this movie and you would see so many trails of red blood on yeah. the white snow, an overhead shot, you know, and it's like, you don't, they don't really glorify it. You know, even the sex scenes in the movie, like the the sex with the 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 prostitutes in the film. One of those prostitutes, by the way, was the uh, dialect coach. Um, I think it's the one that is watching Jose Feliciano with uh, Steve Buscemi. Uh, oh, you mean the one who gives like the to me the greatest awkward "come on and get this over with" like humping sound? Yes, I. Oh, all right, come on. I'm hearing bells. Come on, huh? All right. Sex and violence yeah. are so pedestrian in this movie. Yeah. I You're, also like, think great. they have sex and they immediately just watch the Tonight Show, and it's like, oh my god, it's like sex and then super boring. Like it's yeah, there's nothing like exciting about it. There's nothing titillating about it. I will say one thing that I think is so interesting, and I know we're about to wrap up, but I just there was one point in the film that I thought was so interesting. I think. To talk about the unpredictability of these characters and how you don't know, and even if you did plan the perfect crime, how it could immediately go south, which is when that mechanic comes to find Steve Buscemi and beats the living shit out of him and whips him and, you know, he kicks the girl and he beats the fuck out of the roommate who just is basically saying, keep it down. Like, that guy is pissed, right? Because He's trying to live the straight and narrow. A cop came and talked to him and he's mad. But that beating of Steve Buscemi turns him into a more violent character because he has been embarrassed. And yeah. I think there's something really interesting about that as well. Like he doesn't start to become reckless until he has something to prove. Right. Like he may feign to be tough, but 
the most his acts of violence simply are because he was humiliated. Yeah. Like when he shoots the guy who won't let him like leave the parking lot for free or yeah. or like, right. or honestly, he's, like yeah. he, he, every time he's hurt, he does, he does lash out and get stupid. Like the whole reason he dies at the end is because since he's been shot in the face, he feels like he's entitled to the car. He's already like stealing a million dollars from Peter Stormare, but he yep. can't resist also needing the car because he's the one who got shot. That pain says he needs the car. And because he says he needs the car, he gets like axed and wood chippered. And he kind of does it to himself. He could have gotten away with it and gotten a million dollars. He could have had some sort of bizarre happy ending. But he, he can't do it because every little grievance makes him lash out. But now, Paul, talking mm-hmm. about things that, that turn people on. I mean, I did find a clip that I, that I pulled specifically for you. Like mm-hmm. the biggest like boob flashingest fan of your favorite show, of course, uh, Prairie Home Companion. I mean, you know that when this movie Fargo came out, Prairie Home Companion took it very seriously. Like here are the Coens, you know, kind of claiming the territory that Garrison Keillor had claimed for himself, the down home, like woebegonness of it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a year after Fargo, they do this skit in 1997, that gets into the Minnesota nice Fargo speech now that it has been popularized by Fargo, reclaiming it for themselves and showing how Minnesota nice works in real life and also bringing violence to Prairie Home Companion for one of the few times in its life. So, Carl, did you hear about this new language they're teaching in the schools now? No. What's that about? Oh, yeah. Well, some new program or something. I don't Mm. know. They say that kids in Minnesota, they grow up learning this whole separate language. And uh, teachers ought to know it, too, so they can teach better, don't you know? Mm. Yeah. It's called uh, Wobegonics. Oh, uh yeah. 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 Yeah, that's uh, what it's called now. Listen, uh, why, what's this uh, Wobegonics all about then? Oh, well, basically, it's just your ordinary English, except there's no confrontational verbs or statements of strong personal preference, you know. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, then. well, I read about it in the paper. I thought maybe you would have seen it now. No, <laughs> I didn't read about that. Oh, yeah, well, it was right there in the paper. Huh. Funny yeah. I missed that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, you care for more coffee than there, Carl. Oh, you know, as long as you're up, maybe just a drop there. Yeah, okay, well, there you go. What'd you get the shotgun out for, bye? Tell me which donut you want, Carl, or I'll blow your head off and put you through the blender and run you down the sink and I'm back to... Paul, are you going to be okay? I mean, I know that Garrison Keillor gets really hot-blooded. I mean, look, I, I have a whole storied history with Garrison Keillor, but I, that's a whole nother episode. Um, if Garrison Keillor uh, went out in this direction, I would really like it. I would really uh, get into it. Uh. Well, so this movie comes out Garrison Keillor, I guess, likes it. Uh, most critics definitely like it. It has rave reviews across the board, sweeps tons of like uh, film critics voting awards nominations. But there were a few critics who didn't like it. For one, Richard Corliss of Time got sensitive about the accents in Fargo. I'm going to read a little bit of his piece just because I love the title of it. He called his, his review Swede and Sour. Um, but he said that Fargo could be subtitled how to laugh at people who talk Minnesotan. It is as that after some superb mannerist films, the Coens are back in the deadpan realist territory of Blood Simple, but without the cinematic Elon. Fargo is all attitude wow. and low aptitude. Its function is to italicize the Coens' giddy contempt toward people who talk and think Minnesotan, which is, you know, kind of a bad deal, he writes. And contempt was kind of the common theory that everybody seemed to seize on if they didn't like this movie. They really thought it was condescending. 
The New York Daily News said that compassion is not the Cohen's strong suit. And they said that because they're so skillful, because every element is perfect is perfect and perfectly devastating, that Fargo starts to feel like shooting not particularly deserving fish in an unfairly tight barrel. And Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, he wrote kind of a nuanced review where he said, you know, this is the Cohen's best picture, but he still doesn't like it. He says, if you have the same problems with the movies that I do, Fargo will not brush them away. You know, the Coens combine their usual derisive amusement towards their characters with a certain affection and condescending appreciation for some of the local yokels. But their well-honed anti-humanist vision remains as bleak as ever. This may be a masterpiece of sorts, but it left me feeling rotten. So interesting. And I wonder if they would have that same opinion now. I, You know, it's so hard to look at this film and put myself in 1996 uh, because I think this is so commonplace now. Like, I almost feel like they saw where we were headed, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I love anybody who wants to argue for more compassion and empathy in the movies. But I do think that but, there are... I don't know. I think it is. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I truly think it... Like, I think this movie actually isn't cynical. I think this movie is incredibly hopeful and i think it actually speaks to the beauty of small towns i think it speaks to the the lack of like evil in crime right like these people have done bad things but it wasn't premeditated right how it blows up how everything happens in this movie is so casual in a way that it actually i think it's it's more empowering it's like oh my gosh like we all are capable of this and and we also are capable of wanting more than we can handle and thinking that we're smarter than we are. It's like there's something about this movie that at its core is the I mean, I'm like, I'm going to say this and I hate it already, but I'm like, it's very much indicative of the human condition. Like, you know, we want. Oh, the human what, conditions as Paul human con- wearing yes. a black turtleneck. Oh, yes. go on. No, Clippers hoodie. <laughs> Don't give me that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like the idea that, you know, it, it represents, you know, the want to get out of a small town, the 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 want of fame, the want of money, the the easy solve. And, and I think the truth is, is like. No matter what, like this, the grass is always greener. It doesn't, you know, it isn't. And I think that that's what this movie kind of shows. And maybe that is depressing because it means that you have to also understand that like not every, there is no easy way. Except that I feel like this movie never makes you doubt that Frances McDormand will step in and solve everything and put it to right. You know, this movie never puts her in danger. This movie just, you know, the most she does does is she like ducks a piece of wood and that's it. But you know what, by by keeping her pregnant, I think you're, well, not keeping her pregnant, but I think like there is something about her being fragile in a way. But she doesn't really talk about it, you know, and she's never as like, what kind of a world am I bringing my baby into? Well, she does, but she does talk about about her being pregnant and almost in every scene, like, can I sit down? You can see I'm carrying a wide load. Look at me. I'm pregnant. Don't hug me too tight. Like almost every scene she comments on the fact that she's pregnant. But I'd also argue with like, I'm fearful because I'm pregnant. She's not Stallone, right? She's not going to have these massive shootouts. Like, again, her police work is her intellect, not her climbing up ladders, doing parkour over buildings in downtown Fargo. Yeah. You know, and I think that there's I mean, something she about alone that. Makes, like half the cops 
have, especially all the female cops in movies look dumb because like yeah. so many movies can't resist being like, here's the brightest lady on our force and she's in a miniskirt and black leather heels and watch her go. I like seeing just like a smart, competent, sensible woman, but I feel like she comforts us. She's like, things will be fine. Things will be fine. I will figure it out and there is, and she will restore order. And she does. I mean, there's even like a symmetry to in the way she orders it. I mean, like not only does William H. Macy get arrested doing, you know, like failing at the same thing that his wife did to try to like evade these captors, like Peter Stormare, you know, his first string of crimes is like him shooting somebody running for their life across like a snowy field. And that's what happens to him. She's, she shoots him as he's running across a snowy field. You know, and it just kind of balances the scales. And I think that's what I like about Fargo. It's not like, oh, and tragedy has happened and I couldn't save the day and blah, blah, blah. It like makes you think that bad things happen, but that there's somebody good behind the scenes, which, you know, may also be a lie. But I think that that's what the film does. Well, there we go. And I think we've already kind of gotten into what we put up in space. I think it's still a conversation that we're going to be having about the Coen brothers. I I do think it's uh, a crime that it was taken off the list. It may not be. It may. Was it a deliberate crime? Was it a well thought out crime? But you know what? I I would like to understand why this movie did not go on the list, especially with the other 99 films on it. Like this movie represents so much. If they took off this and put on Raising Arizona or they put on, you know, another Coen Brothers movie, I would be like, okay, well, I I understand there's that. But there's something about this movie. It's a it's. A perfectly made film that I think has incredible longevity. It launched careers. It won awards. It was universally loved. Um, And it was an independent film that really, I think, made a distinctive mark in familiar territory. The fact that it's not on the list is shocking to me. Whether or not this is their best movie, that's a different conversation. But the fact that it was removed is is truly like... uh, I, I think an absolute crime and I don't understand it. Well, I want to make you a promise to your face mm-hmm. in my Texas nice. That is very sincere. Us Texans were straight shooters. We will have a Coen Brothers film on the list. I promise. Restore will be ordered in that way. We will. We will. We will. And I think it only, I mean, I, I'm also, I believe that there should be more than one. If we're putting on whoa, directors whoa, like, whoa. Hey, well, no, hey, no, no, no. well wait, when we talk about directors like, uh, Kubrick and Spielberg and we give them this ability to get two on the list like because if there are any directors that truly jump from genre to genre it is definitely the Coens and I think just one film does not represent their voice uh, but this might be the film that represents all elements of it but that we've already discussed that um, Amy next week <laughs> we have just started this miniseries of being in the snow being in the snow being cold but how about a movie that gives you chills? Ooh. Because, yeah, next week we're going to be watching Scream, the original Wes Craven Scream. And it's not just because Scream 5 is being released in the theaters this month. It's not because of that. It, it, it It's for a lot of other reasons. You know, it definitely fits within our theme. Because isn't the bad guy in that called Snowface? Well, you should have done that entire excuse in Minnesota Nice. 
<laughs> oh yeah, it's it's a it's a snowy movie. I mean, it's but you know what it is. It wasn't snowing then. That's that's the problem of it. It was it was supposed to be snowing when that uh, ghost face came out. But uh, but yeah, no, it wasn't. I'll tell you this much though. Uh, it's scary. It's 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 about people being trapped inside. You know. Uh, so anyway, Scream One. We're gonna be watching that Wes Craven movie and that new one, Scream Five. Oh my goodness, Neve Campbell. Is that she's fantastic? I love her. Uh, anyway. Scream next week, Wes Craven's Scream, uh, to go along with Scream 5, It's Always Someone You Know, a real clunky-ass title. Uh, but uh, take a listen to the trailer. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie like scary movies. Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now, he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act. She's always running up the stairs and she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. You do make the rules. The police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. All right, Amy, we will see you next week for Scream 5 and then back into our cold film genre. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.